What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. The Zeros taught us phosphorus. We learned to like the fire by playing glaciers when a boy and tender guest by power of opposite to balance odd, if white a red must be, paralysis our primer, dumb unto vitality. Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, that was a little Emily Dickinson to catch things uh, ablaze here as we begin our third uh, and I, I guess final episode on matches. Who would have known that she had a poem about chemistry? I, <laughs> this one, I'd never heard of this, uh, this particular poem before. I was just looking up, uh, I was just researching phosphorus. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, there's a poem by Emily Dickinson. And I was like, oh, well, we've got to include this. Uh-huh. We've got to do a cold reading of this poem. I'm not sure it's actually about chemistry. I have no idea what this one's about. Like, like many <laughs> of her great poems that I really do enjoy reading line by line, it ultimately becomes very difficult to understand what they're about, if anything. Yeah, like it, it's almost, I guess, certainly not literally about phosphorus. <laughs> but it is at least uh, using phosphorus as a, a metaphor for something. It's bringing up tinder and the white and the red. Uh, well, I, I can't help but wonder if that is a, a reference to white and red phosphorus, ah. which we'll be discussing in this episode. Now, in the last episode, we finally got to the friction match uh, attributed to the English chemist and and druggist John Walker, who uh, in the 1820s put together this paste made of antimony sulfide, potassium chlorate, all bound together with a gum, put that on the end of a stick, gave it to you with a piece of sandpaper and said, have fun. (laughs) That's right. We also discussed the properties of phosphorus, white phosphorus, and some of the dangerous sounding inventions, or not just dangerous sounding, but outright dangerous inventions that sought to take advantage of its incendiary properties. Right. And then? 
as pointed out in one of our sources for this episode, uh, uh, an article by Pollock, Brown, and Rubin that was published in 2015 in Craniomaxillofacial Trauma and Reconstruction. Around 1860, phosphorus and strike matches began to come together in a major way. Right, because there are different recipes you can use for a kind of strike match, right? Uh, obviously, phosphorus has an advantage because it has uh, the, the ability to – it has a low ignition point and the ability to ignite in the presence of oxygen. Uh, so it's not hard to get it burning. Then would also sometimes be combined with like some sulfur elements. There are a few different ways you can put together the, the chemical head of a match, but phosphorus is clearly a winner for that recipe. Yeah. Uh, the authors here mentioned that in 1859, which would have been the year of Walker's death, he found uh, white phosphorus, also sometimes referred to as yellow phosphorus, uh, being added to sulfur-based matchstick coatings to trigger an even more volatile flame, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which, as you can imagine, it it could be more beneficial, especially if you were in a trying environment. Uh, even today, you can get you can get matches that flare up more and a little or a little more, uh, you know, almost explosive at the initial strike. Another thing I'm not positive about, but I kind of wonder if having more power in the phosphorus and less in the sulfur would make the matches less noxious in terms of fumes and smell. Hmm. Uh, Because remember in the last episode, one of the main types of matches were these things called lucifers, these sulfur-based strike matches that were being produced by a guy out of London, I think named Samuel Jones. And, you know, it was like warned. It was like, be careful inhaling this stuff. It is not for the weak of lung. (laughs) Now, according to um, uh, Jamie Wisniak, who is one of the authors that we referenced in the previous episodes Mm -hmm. who wrote, wrote a piece about the history of matches, you had an earlier innovator by the name of Jacob Friedrich Kammerer, who is often credited as the first manufacturer of the phosphorus-based friction match. However, French chemist Charles-Marc Saria, who lived 1812 through 1895— demonstrated the design earlier than that. Uh, and all, all of this began to get going uh, really in earnest around um, 1830. Uh, but again, 1860, uh, by that point, the white phosphorus friction match was apparently very popular. So here we go, a new evolution in our match technology. They were very popular, they were handy, but as it turns out, their manufacture was coming at a horrifying price. Yes. So to be clear, there are no shortage of horrors to be found uh, within the Industrial Revolution. Uh, The world's growing demand for manufactured goods and the rapidly changing ways that these goods were produced introduced a variety of environments and practices that were harmful to human and environmental well-being. So the manufacture of the phosphorus match, though, presents a particularly pronounced and horrifying example, and that is uh, in the creation of these phosphorus matches – uh, the individuals who uh, work to create them day in, day out, hour upon hour, uh, begin to suffer from what is known as fossy jaw or more officially phosphorus necrosis of the jaw. This is a necrosis of the bones in the face that was common enough that it got a cute nickname. Yeah. Fossy jaw. And somehow that makes it so much worse. I know. Uh, especially when you're looking at photographs. I mean, this was an age of, of photographic evidence. We have photographs of the kind of damage that was wrought on people's facial features. Yeah, like what What if you had like a cute, funny name for cholera? Yeah. Like that's telling you you're getting cholera way too much. Yeah, it makes it – yeah, it just makes it all the more sinister. Um, so – Humans had been working with white phosphorus since its discovery in the 17th century. But it's one thing for an alchemist or a chemist to encounter the fumes of its um, of, of, of working with it. 
you know, perhaps in passing inside of a layer or a workshop. It's quite another for these fumes to be summoned in an industrial environment and inflicted on unsuspecting workers day in and day out. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. So Pollock et al. discussed this in that uh, that paper. Uh, the full title is Fossey Jaw and Bisfossey Jaw of the 19th and 21st Century, The Diuturnity of John Walker and the Friction Match. Man, I had to look up the word diuturnity. I was not familiar with that one. Apparently, it means having the quality of long-lastingness. Oh. So they point out that the, the, the vats that were used to create these, uh, the, the phosphorus uh, you know, paste for these matches, mm-hmm. it released all these toxic fumes. And these were particularly pronounced in the dipping centers and in the drying rooms for uh, the matches. Yeah. As such, the dippers and the handlers were exposed to it the most. Right, because there were a number of different jobs. I mean, one of the things that came about during the Industrial Revolution was like the division of labor into smaller and smaller jobs mm-hmm. repeated more and more. So like there were some people whose job was just to like cram the match into the boxes as fast yeah. as they could or whatever. And so, like, it, it, those people were at lower risk than the people who were dealing directly with the fumes at the more volatile stage. And these were some pretty tough fumes. I mean, we know today that a, as little as 50 milligrams of white phosphorus can prove fatal, for for instance. And and here the, the fumes are just, you know, imagining the, the places where these, uh, uh, these matches are being produced. The ventilation is probably not that great. And uh, the levels uh, of the toxicity from this exposure... Uh, basically broke down as follows. This, again, according to Pollock et al. So first of all, uh, gingivitis within three to five years of exposure. So gum disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then also uh, sequestration of alveolar crest bone within three to five years of exposure. Now, uh, sequestration uh, in the medical sense is abnormal separation. And the area in question, this is the um, uh, the most coronal portion of the bone surrounding the tooth. So, yeah, as in common terms, people would talk about the teeth becoming loose because yep. like the bone and the gums, the, the everything that's sort of holding them in place is getting loosened up and coming away. Yeah. Uh, the, the the fun part, too, is if you read this entire paper, you will begin to feel your teeth loosen a little bit. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I got so grossed out yeah. researching this episode. Yeah. Yeah, it's grim stuff. So, yeah, this would also – this could also result in lost teeth, of course, uh, uh, because then the next level is uh, full-on uh, osteonecrosis of mandibular and maxillary bone stock. This would be the fossy jaw within three to five years of exposure. So we're talking, quote, death of bone tissue due to temporary – or permanent loss of blood supply to the bones. And the, the authors describe this resulting in, quote, unrelenting jaw pain. Yeah, and of course you can understand why, because the bone is basically turning into a sponge, you know, oh. like it's like losing density because it, it's not being able to replace itself with new tissue because it's not getting the blood flow it needs. Something that's even more eerie and kind of hard to believe, but I, I read, uh, read mentions of this in a couple sources there is this idea of the phosphoric luminescence. As the gums begin to separate and the jawbone begins to decay, apparently some victims' gums would glow a faint pale green in the dark. Oh, that is horrifying. And yet there's more because this could also lead to oral and orocutaneous fistula. These were also common. Uh, and fistulae means connections between two hollows. Right. So like unnatural connections between right. two hollows. Yes. Yeah. And with increased exposure, they could also develop fossy lung, resulting in cough, uh, sputum production, and hemoptysis. And hemoptysis is coughing up blood. 
And then you could also develop Fosse brain. This would be where the individual would uh, would would have seizures. Uh, obviously, this could be fatal. You could also become anemic. This would be where the blood lacks enough healthy red uh, blood cells uh, or uh, or hemoglobin. And then also you could have Fosse marrow, and this would just be reduced white blood cells. Now there are lots of existing photographs of what this is like. It's uh, it- it's horrible. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're talking complete decomposition of the jaw and extensive inflammation of the surrounding tissue. And uh, it did not apparently take uh, the match industry long to realize that there were some serious issues going on. Yeah, I was reading actually as early as 1852, Charles Dickens wrote about, quote, one of the evils of matchmaking in his weekly magazine, Household Words, which oh, wow. include, it, it included reports from different matchstick factories about the like uh, the disease and the conditions there. Like he talks about one factory that I, I don't know exactly what it was they did specially. He, he reports like some hygiene conditions there involved like washing and stuff like that. But I don't know exactly how that would contribute to – uh, reducing the exposure to the vapors or something, but mm-hmm. he said like they that, were they were doing uh, dental washings for the individuals. And he he doesn't say dental. It sounds more like some kind of bathing or something. Oh, but okay. I, I don't know. I don't fully understand what was happening there. But he at least says you know in some factories the conditions aren't as bad as in others, and okay. it seems to be suggested that you can do something to prevent this. But I don't know. I mean, maybe. I mean, I'm sure Charles Dickens was not an epidemiologist here. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I think I'll probably get to this in a bit. But but later on, you do see some of these uh, factories implementing uh, dental checkups and mm-hmm. some level of dental care for the individuals. So that's why my mind immediately thought went to like the idea of maybe like a mouthwash uh, being instituted for for everybody. To what degree that is would actually help? You know, I, I'm not sure. Uh, so I found a good post about Fosse Jaw and the the actual medical progression here by Susan Isaac on the blog for the Library of the Royal College of Surgeons in England. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this post focuses on the experience of a surgeon named James Rushmore Wood, who wrote a medical article in 1857 about his attempts to help a patient named Cornelia, who was a 16-year-old girl. She worked full-time in a New York matchstick factory for about two and a half years. And I will warn you, this is going to get pretty graphic for a minute here, but I think it's important important to to drive home what these workers were facing. So uh, consider yourself warned. Buckle up. Uh, So, quote, in May 1855, she was seized with a toothache and swelling on the right side of her lower jaw. To relieve the pain, first her gums were lanced and later a tooth was extracted. But the swelling gradually increased until a spontaneous opening formed under her jaw, which continuously discharged pus. Despite this, she continued to work in the factory until a week before she was admitted to Bellevue Hospital on 17th December 1855. Uh, so so once she's at Bellevue, she starts to have real difficulty eating, obviously, because it's too painful for her to chew. And she had severe pain in the jaw and swelling of the face. And eventually, Wood decided that the only way to save her was to remove the decaying bone on the right side of her jaw. And this is an intervention at the time. They thought that you, you remove the decaying bone and that prevents the spread of the, the phosphorus poisoning to other parts of the body, like it prevents it spreading to the brain. So this surgery took place in January of 1856. Uh, There was no anesthesia. 
he had to use what was called a chainsaw to cut down the middle of the jaw. And th- this wouldn't be a, a motorized chainsaw like we have today. This would be more like a chain or a wire pulled back and forth by hand to saw the bones. Oh, okay. Uh, Isaac compares it to a big cheese wire. And then in the middle of the procedure, the chain broke and he had to get the rest of the jaw half off using forceps. Oh. So she survived the surgery and she was healing, but then the left side of her jaw started showing the same phosphorus poisoning symptoms the right had. And in the middle of February, they had to go back in and remove the entire remaining lower jaw. Uh, she was treated with laudanum. And in the following days, it says she received wine and, quote, a daily lead and opium wash. Oh, okay. But amazingly, Cornelia survived the surgery, and she was still able to move her tongue and mouth. Apparently, she recovered to better health after this. And uh, Wood mentioned that he apparently was proud he had somewhat preserved the appearance of her face despite having to remove the entire lower jaw. Oh, my goodness. But yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable, especially given the the medical technology of the day. Like, they didn't have antibiotics at this Mm -hmm. point. They couldn't give her that. Uh, So I'm sure a lot of people going in for these kind of surgeries probably didn't fare as well as Cornelia did. Uh, and the the surgery is just as described. It's unimaginable to me. Right, and and and, and indeed, we're seeing this carried out probably by an extremely gifted surgeon of the day. You know, yeah. not everybody was was lucky enough to have access to someone like that. Yeah, but so this is what tons of workers in these factories of the period were facing. And one of the hardest things to understand is that. It wasn't like nobody understood what was going on. You know, it wasn't like nobody knew that phosphorus could be bad for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, white phosphorus was uh, already recognized as an irritant poison in poison literature of the 1810s. Uh, Bone necrosis was reported as early as 1840. By 1869, phosphorus was in use as a poison by criminals. And this was in due in large part because white phosphorus paste was being used uh, in animal poisons, like for, you know, poisoning of rats and vermin and whatnot. Um, and there was no cure. That was another reason it was, uh, again, popular with um, with criminals, mm-hmm. at least until uh, uh, an individual by the name of uh, Jacques Persson, who lived 1816 through 1880, conducted experiments on dogs and found that turpentine uh, could, be, could be used to treat such poisonings as it hinders the uh, hemoglobin attacking properties of phosphorus in the blood. Early in 1839, in fact, the hazards were to some degree appreciated within the industry. Uh, The issue contributed to a major London strike in 1888, for example. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that in detail in just a minute. And like I mentioned earlier, match factories began to offer free dental care and regular inspections for employees. Um, I believe it is that that craniofacial paper actually had a, a photograph of one of these dental clinics from a match factory. And yet, the use of white phosphorus continued until the early 20th century when an international ban uh, came into place in, I believe, 1906, and major international manufacturers followed suit over the following decade. Well, maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can talk more about the rebellion of the matchstick factory workers and the strike of 1888. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal 
and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. All right, we're back. Let's talk about the matchstick strike. Okay, uh, so I was reading about the British campaign against conditions in matchstick factories in the 1880s in a short article by a University of Bradford nursing and healthcare scholar named Catherine Best. And this was especially good because through it I found a link to an original document from the period that's just amazing. Um, So specifically, she is focused on the matchstick girls who worked in the east end of London often for 14 hours a day for low pay under pretty miserable conditions. For example, employers would impose fines on the workers for all kinds of ways they screwed up at the job. So like if they accidentally spilled matches on their bench. You could get a fine. Mm -hmm. Or if you talk to the person next to you during a shift, you could get fined. So just all sorts of punitive measures to try and uh, ensure uh, production goes off without a without a stitch. Yes. And most importantly, there, of course, is this constant exposure to the now well-known hazards of white phosphorus vapors. Like as we discussed, the negative health effects of white phosphorus were well known by this time, but also at this time, there were not sufficient workplace safety laws in place. So There are no laws to protect the workers, really. Factory owners are just sort of on their honor. (laughs) And, of course, many of them are going to decide, well, what, am I going to make less money or am I going to subject my workers to this peril as one of the costs of doing business? You can guess which one a lot of them chose. Oh, yeah, because you can also imagine workers – I mean the factory owners – having an attitude of like, well, we'll do something about this later. Right now, we got to focus on on the profits. But of course, uh, the, the white phosphorus poisoning, that's going to 
come in every day for work on time. It's never going to, f- to fail to show up. That is a very good point. So then in the year 1888, Annie Besant wrote an expose of the conditions at Bryant and May, which Catherine Best points out, this is confusing, is somehow not the same as a different modern company called Bryant and May, which also makes matches. Huh. So uh, so I guess whoever the modern one is, don't hold this story about this other company against them. Okay, good to know. But anyway, so Annie Besant wrote this article for a London socialist journal published on June 23rd, 1888. And so she goes through explaining the impossibly low wages they get paid and how, you know, you can barely survive on them. And then she describes factory conditions, including all of the supposed infractions that workers get charged fines for, including the ones uh, I mentioned a minute ago, but also things like, quote, One girl was fined for letting the web twist round a machine in the endeavor to save her fingers from being cut. And she was sharply told to take care of the machine, quote, never mind your fingers. Another, who carried out the instructions and lost a finger thereby, was left unsupported when she was helpless. The wage covers the duty of submitting to an occasional blow from the foreman, one who appears to be a gentleman of variable temper and, quote, clouts them, quote, when he is mad. Oh. Bassant also describes this um, unbelievable episode. I was getting so mad just reading about it where the factory owner, Mr. Theodore Bryant, wanted to build a statue in honor of a Mr. Gladstone. She doesn't say ex- exactly who this is and I'm not positive, but I think it probably refers to the British politician William Ewart Gladstone who uh, had been the prime minister of the UK several times in the late 1800s. And so the owner, he likes this public figure, probably this politician, he wants to fund the creation of this statue in his honor and, quote, in order that his work girls might have the privilege of contributing, he stopped one shilling each out of their wages and further deprived them of a half day's work by closing the factory, quote, giving them a holiday. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, we mentioned uh, Dickens earlier, and it's amazing how you know, as, as poorly as we perceive uh, Ebenezer Scrooge uh-huh. prior to his, um, his his great change, like Scrooge is nowhere near as bad as this guy is sounding. No, at least because because Scrooge at least got to like be mean to your face. Mm-hmm. Like you got to fully acknowledge like, OK, my boss is mean and he like knows he's mean. Right. Uh, this guy is like, wouldn't you love the privilege of contributing to this statue that I want to build in honor uh-huh. of a politician? Well, I'll just dock your pay so that you can contribute. Oh, that's just it's that's unimaginable. And uh, according to Passant, this leads to some of the workers gathering as the statue is unveiled, bringing bricks with them and pelting it at its unveiling. Oh my! And then intentionally cutting themselves and smearing their blood on the marble because the statue they believe was paid for by their blood. Oh my! My goodness. I don't know if there's a movie about this, but there should be. Absolutely. I mean, this is dramatic. Uh, and then at the end, Besant encourages a boycott of Bryant and May matches. No, no big surprise there. She's like, you know, we're going to make them pay. And she writes, quote, Oh, if we had but a people's Dante to make a special circle in the inferno for those who live on this misery and suck the wealth out of the starvation of helpless girls, failing a poet to hold up their conduct to the execration of posterity enshrined in deathless verse, let us strive to touch their consciences, i.e. their pockets, and let us at least avoid being, quote, partakers of their sins by abstaining from using their commodities. 
Yeah, and this is this is ultimately why we need we do need laws and regulations <laughs> in place uh, to make sure that uh, you know the certain. Um, a certain threshold is is uh, is is reached and maintained by companies like this. Yeah, I mean, even with laws and regulations in place, employers can be infuriating sometimes. Right. But like it, you know, without any leash, without without w- laws yeah. and regulations to try and circumvent, like <laughs> like this this is the level that uh, the waters fall to. So obviously, the bosses did not love this article that she published, and so it led to a series of retaliatory actions by the factory bosses, which in turn led to a strike mm-hmm. of more than fourteen hundred women and girls who worked in the factories. And eventually it was resolved. They, uh, the strikers negotiated a list of demands from the owners. But still, it wasn't until almost two decades later that white phosphorus was made illegal for match manufacturing in the UK and was, uh, according to Best, uh, basically taxed out of business practicality in the United States. So like she said, they put a punitive tax on it that made it not feasible to use Mm -hmm. white phosphorus anymore. Again, kind of speaking to their their conscious, right, their pocketbooks. Yeah, yeah, the conscience in the pockets. Now, another huge change, uh, perhaps one of the the more important changes here, came via the discovery of amorphous or red phosphorus in 1845 by Austrian chemist Anton von Schroeter. Uh, I got to admit, it made me think about Star Trek. Yeah. You know, it was like, so like red matter yeah. kind of stuff. It, it sounds like an alternative sci-fi version of something. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, in, in a sense, it, it was, it's pretty interesting. Basically, red phosphorus is obtained through the heat treatment of white phosphorus in a sealed, lightless environment, mm. uh, which is a detail I love because that makes me think back to white phosphorus's uh, alchemical origins. You know, it sounds like something from the world of alchemy that it must be brewed uh, you know, away from the light of the sun. In the darkness, in the pit of my lair. Yeah. So uh, red phosphorus is comparatively non-toxic and does not spontaneously combust. Uh, Swedish chemist uh, Jons Jacob Berzelius saw the potential for matches, and then author Albright developed a means of mass-producing red phosphorus by 1851. And this would pave the way for what we come to know as the safety match. Well, maybe we should take a quick break. Then when we come back, we can explore the safety match. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney Collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. 
Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. All right, we're back. So at this point, we have friction matches that no longer depend on a toxic poison. But there was another risk factor with the friction match, and this this one is, I think, exemplified by the cool images you might have seen of various villains striking matches on, say, the brick wall of an alley and then lighting their smoke or mm-hmm. their belt buckle or with their fingernails. The shoe. The, the lighting shoe. it on the shoe. Yeah. That's a good cartoon character move. Yeah, and it's it, there's it's something yeah magical about it. It's like I can summon fire out of the very rocks, uh, out of the uh, the space between my fingernails, etc. Striking a match on a part of your body is kind of like the people who like to open bottles with their teeth. Yeah, this raises an interesting side question. I forget what it was, but there was some time in the past several months where I caught my son attempting to open something with his teeth, Ugh. and I had to. I was like, "What are you doing?" And I and I, I had to bring myself down a notch because then I realized have I, I asked myself have I ever said don't use your teeth to open something like I don't think I had uh-huh. um, it makes me wonder like to what extent the using of our teeth to open things and to, to perform various tasks is kind of ingrained in us mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we, you know, if, if not for a parental voice telling us, no, you don't need to do that, or if not for life lessons that show you the, the dangers of trying to open too many bottles with your teeth, that we would just depend on them. Uh, maybe I am just weak-willed by nature, but I am not a tooth opener. Yeah. I, I do not have it in my DNA to put uh, yeah, my teeth I, on that random thing. I do not, at least not me. I don't know if I did when I was a kid, but I, I certainly don't now. And that's one of the reasons I was kind of like horrified uh, when I when I caught my son trying to open something with his teeth. I, though I do remember thinking, uh, this is hilarious in retrospect, that when I was a kid and I saw other kids doing that, you know, they open the Coke bottle with their teeth or whatever, I remember thinking, wow, that person's really brave. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, now we know they just didn't have a responsible adult in their life to to yell at them. <laughs> That's a guy I can depend on. <laughs> All right, so um, so yeah, these strike anywhere matches that uh, uh, that uh, that's just strike off of a wall or a boot or what have you. Uh, so if a match head can ignite via friction like this, then it can potentially obtain that friction not only um, you know on purpose, but you know when you're striking it, but also accidentally by striking against among other things. Other match heads. Yep. And, of course, this would not be an issue if you only carried a single match at a time or you kept individual matches stored inside of friction-proof storage cylinders or something. But that's hardly practical. Matches frequently come in boxes. And you do not want an entire box of matches suddenly igniting in your carriage, in your home, in your satchel, on a ship, or you know wherever uh, you happen to be carrying them. 
Usually bad when your cargo spontaneously catches fire, yes. Right. Yeah, n- nobody nobody needs that. So the answer to all this is going to be the safety match, and it is going to merge uh, out of Sweden. So Sweden was really big in the match game at the time. This is where uh, Alexander Lagerman would bring uh, the first automated match fabricator online in 1864, and the resulting high-speed production would lead to the invention of the matchbook by American Joshua uh, Pusey in the 1890s. But before all of this, uh, the idea emerged that the red phosphorus necessary uh, to the match striking could be placed elsewhere, not in the head of the match, but in a special strike plate on the side of the box. Ah, so you'd be like taking the phosphorus and the sulfur away from each other. Right. You you don't just get to hang out in the same room. We'll put you together when it's time. Right. And so this brings me back to, again, to my childhood of playing with matches, watching cool villains and cowboys and whatnot strike matches off of just random things. Mm -hmm. And I remember trying to do this (laughs) with a safety match and – and I remember my disappointment at not being able to carry this out. Did you think it was a problem with the matches or did you think it was a problem with yourself? I – well, you know, once you've destroyed half a box of matches trying to look cool, you realize, well, maybe it's not me. Maybe it is the <laughs> matches. Uh, maybe there's something different about these matches. Right. Uh, and, and that is indeed the case. So, yeah, the, the idea is to take that red phosphorus and put it in that strike plate. So the match head contains like paraffin or sulfur while the red, the red phosphorus is again in the strike plate along with something like powdered glass to help create the friction. Now, Swedish chemist Gustav Erik Posh is credited with first devising this technique, but he wasn't able to fully realize it. Uh, I believe I was reading that he was, you know, having trouble getting the, uh, you know, the chemical just right. He couldn't, he couldn't make it happen. The idea was there, uh, and he had, he was under the right track, but he just couldn't make it work in a, you know, consistent manner. Yeah, I've usually seen credit given to somebody named Johan Lundström. Yes, this would be uh, the Lundström brothers, uh, John and Carl, who improved on these designs, and then they introduced the safety match to the market in the late 1850s. Now, Strike Anywhere matches are still available. I mean, that's where the cowboys and the villains were getting them, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, Some of my cooler friends had them when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and they these would, uh, you know, generally contain, say, phosphorus uh, sesquisulfide uh, instead of white phosphorus. But there have been journal articles about poisonings, mostly f- I was finding them from the first half of the 20th century concerning match and max matchbox dermatitis mm. from the use of such matches. They even made mention of uh, tooth loosening as well. Ugh. So again, it seems like there were still some uh, health concerns with with uh, with these this variety of phosphorus match. Now, of course, the the evolution of the match doesn't stop there. Uh, we eventually get. Um, uh, the matchbook, uh, which comes online, uh, and the matchbook becomes, of course, very popular for advertising, uh, for or spreading propaganda, right? Uh, especially in the age of uh, of smoking, you uh-huh. know. I mean, this is the, the how you have your handy light, you know. If, if you in addition to the lighter technology, they're mainly useful for writing a clue in in a detective yes. story. Yes, and then forgetting about it, losing the matchbook, or you wind up murdered, and someone else reads your matchbook. Yeah. You also have the incense match where uh, something else is added to the chemistry of the match head in order to produce a more pleasing aroma. You also have varying matchbook designs. Uh, I was looking around at at just some of the different designs you can get nowadays from Mm -hmm. major match uh, manufacturers. Uh, one uh, that I remember encountering pretty early in my life was the, the popular lipstick box, 
with, so it's a little more like a little casket. I mean, matchboxes are always going to be caskets for dolls and action figures and, and occasionally actual animals. Uh, but this one is uh, more slender. Hmm. Uh, so there are a huge variety of different box designs. You also see long fireplace matches, right? Cause, I remember those, yeah. Because yeah, sometimes you need to get the fire uh, further into, say, um, you know, the, the, the logs of a, of a fireplace that have been prepared. Also, there's the, the subject of waterproof matches, and you can you can also make waterproof matches using a variety of different recipes to treat normal safety matches. But it also seems that nothing quite beats keeping your matches as dry as possible through other means, such as waterproof cylinders. But then again, I'll, there are going to be situations where you're trying to use matches uh, in, say, very moist or rainy conditions, and that's where the necessity comes into play. Uh, but then also some of these environments will call for stronger burning matches, uh, such as lifeboat matches, which are just a variety that are going to ignite and burn uh, you know, uh, brighter and stronger uh, at a you know, higher temperature. Man, this history of matches has proven so much more interesting than I might have guessed. We got to Otzi the Iceman. We got to muskets. We got to uh, uh, 19th century labor conditions. We got mm-hmm. to crazy medical misadventures. This has been all over the place. Yeah, we had we had Alchemist. We had Plenty the Elder. We had Emily Dickinson. Um, we Ebenezer Scrooge popped up. Uh-huh. Uh, you really couldn't ask for a better journey through human techno history. It's been fun, but maybe we got to put out the light. We do. Uh, It's burning a little too close to our fingertips. It is time to just go ahead and blow it out and uh, stomp it under our feet. But we will be back with future episodes of Invention, where we will continue this journey through techno history, exploring the various inventions and innovations that uh, changed the way we live and, and ultimately what we are. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes, you can head on over to inventionpod.com, and that will probably shoot you over to uh, the iHeart listing for our show. Will it? We've been having some issues today. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, just this morning. I think those are sorted out. Uh, It should point you in the right direction. If not, you can just go to the to the iHeart page, look us up, find us there, subscribe, rate, and review. And wherever you get the podcast, because it's available everywhere, just make sure that you subscribe, that you rate, that you review. These are the things that help us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events... 
You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. Right, let's go. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. <laughs> you can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Oh, oh, oh. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. 